Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hi. Hey, how you doing? So, um, uh, okay, so we, we're on a really... We're on a schedule. We got a we got a rundown and a script, right? We're ready to go. We're yeah. gonna be focused. That's right. Do you want to? Um, no, we just get I just want to be out of the way. Or... Yeah, oh. I want to be focused. Okay, I just want to be focused. focused. Focused like a great what photographer. Is, what is? Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, right, uh, right. So find the show first. Go to the show. Uh, Rash Pixel TV. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, it's movies we like. Uh, it's me and and uh, Andy Nelson, and we're thrilled to be here. We're talking about a great movie tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, The Natural. It's kicking off our uh, series on baseball, or as they they say in uh, in in uh, Mexico, baseball, baseball, el natural. <laughs> I should have been a farmer. <laughs> Uh, and so we're talking about the natural Robert Redford. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic film, and uh, very much looking forward to talking about that. But first, if you need to check out uh, the vast archive, uh, the uh, veritable library of past movies we like episodes, where we talk about such uh, film greats as Clute. <laughs> that was just that was just. <laughs> I totally didn't mean to laugh. That was just the first movie that came up, and I thought, what an obscure movie to, for that one to come up in my in my head. Um, so we've talked about other movies, a lot of them, and so you should go listen to them and and check them out. Join us, uh, join us on our Google Plus page. Uh, you can find uh, actually go to Rashpixel.tv. You can find all the the various uh, and sundry pages that we are on. You can learn about. Uh, Andy Nelson uh, and uh, about myself if you are so interested, and follow us on Twitter. Are you, you know are what, you doing? You know have you changed really, Twitter? Have you changed your no, Twitter? I haven't I haven't changed anything. Uh, you know what I really like about going to the rashpixel.tv page? That it's not finished yet and that it's just like a massive construction zone? Well, that cuz I love construction. Yeah. But also because I can get access to all sorts of wonderful links that we talk about on our show. That's a great <laughs> plug. You know, I'm glad you said that. We should say that more often. We do every episode we talk about other links and we add those links to the show notes, and so you should check those out too. Look at how yes. focused we were. Uh, it's Bam! Amazing. It's amazing. Uh, Three minutes and seven seconds in. Let's get into this. Can I tell you? Uh, uh, can I tell you? Uh, no, you go first. Let's talk about. You want to talk about budgets? I, I want to talk about budgets because <laughs> who doesn't love talking about? Man, budgets? there is nothing to spice <laughs> up a different dinner conversation than budgets. Uh, yes, that's right. That's what I try to do every time I have a, a great dinner conversation. It's it really, really works to clear the hot, house. Hot, it's, <laughs> hot budget no, no. talk. Um, one of our one of our um, friends and listeners, Steve Sarmento, sent a. Uh, a note to me after our last episode, because we were talking about The Cat in the Hat and our, our buddy Bo Welch, who directed it. 
and how no, that was this the last last episode what are we talking about like joe versus volcano this is the joe versus volcano okay. episode all right so uh, because bo welch was the production designer right. on that and you remember yeah I'm, well i was i was there you were there that was good so so that movie which cost $109 million to make. <sighs> That's a lot of movie for uh, a lot of money for that movie. It was only 82 minutes long. That movie cost more per minute than Titanic. Titanic, wow. which at the time was the was the uh, largest budget that had come around $200 million. So, I mean, it's almost twice the budget of Cat in the Hat. But it's 194 minutes long. So per finished minute of film, Titanic was um, just over a million dollars per finished minute. Cat in the Hat was $1.3 million per finished minute. Okay, so what are we to learn from this? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, yes, James Cameron makes these ridiculously expensive films. But when you look at it cost per minute, he's actually doing pretty good. So I, I went and uh, looked at one of uh, you know the great box office data sites, thenumbers.com, and I looked at budgets, the top 20 budgets of films that have been released. They have some on there that haven't yet, like The Hobbit, uh, Dark Knight Rises, Men in Black 3, Lone Ranger. But I took the top 20 films that they have on there that have been released. Now, these budgets aren't necessarily including um, marketing expenses, all of that. It's just, it's for what I can tell, strictly production budgets, you know, it's all a little wishy-washy because the studios never like to tell you the truth. But, right. and I, I did a little spreadsheet because I am geeky and I do things like that. Yeah. Of the top 20 movies ranked in order of what the most expensive film was per minute. Which is an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. I mean, we can't. We I assume. Did you did you adjust for uh, inflation in your spreadsheet? No. Uh, to be honest, the oldest. <laughs> no. <laughs> honest, I'm just saying. It, did you do it in 1950s dollars? <laughs> Actually, I did it in. No, I can't. I don't have anything funny to go with that. <laughs> okay. No, that was but, good. But all of these um, of the top 20 films, um, except for Titanic and Cat in the Hat, which I just threw on, are actually. Uh, all within the last like t 10 years or so. Okay. Oddly, because, you know, since Titanic, budgets have blown up. So if you look at the most expensive film budgeted, actually the two most expensive films budgeted on the numbers list are John Carter, your favorite. Love that movie. And Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Both of those films were budgeted at $300 million. Oh my goodness. I know. Oh, my goodness. There are like whole countries that could eat on that film. I know. It's insane. So I'll just race down this list. Okay. Starting at the top. So John Carter, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Tangled of all things was the next one at $260 million. Well, that's obscene. Going down from there, Spider-Man 3, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Pirates of the Caribbean, Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Avatar, Superman Returns, Quantum of Solace, The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, X-Men, The Last Stand, Robin Hood, King Kong, The Golden Compass, Cars 2, Toy Story 3, Titanic. That's where Titanic comes wow. in. Wow. And that's number... 
that's about 20 down on the list. That's number 20. So, yeah, I mean, it ties with a bunch of films that all cost $200 million. Okay, so that's the so, that's the list in order of budget. Yeah, so okay. when you break it down per minute, the most expensive film per finished minute out there, which of those li- on that list would you say? <laughs> if you say Tangled, I think I'm just going to I'm going to throw up <laughs> in my mouth. It is Tangled. No. Tangled cost $2.6 million per finished minute. It was a 100-minute film, $260 million to make. Are it cost in- $2.6 uh, million per finished minute. <laughs> that's insane. I know. That was I, was I, that uh, DreamWorks? Is that DreamWorks? That no, that's, that? that's Disney. That's, that was their... That well, was the okay. 50th, that was Disney's 50th animated film. They were just pulling out all the stops. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Oh, that's a fa- that. that's a failure of that's got to be a failure of project management because that was not uh that 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 was absolutely not a, a groundbreaking technological feat was it i mean there was nothing in that movie that seemed like it really i mean it was no avatar no but i mean tangled they really did was a the lot hair. to try to improve the the 3d animation world i mean it was i think it was their if i recall the first 3D. No, it wasn't the first 3D animated film, but it really had an amazing 3D depth to it. Still, no. 260 million. Well, I little... should have had a better story. How about that? Yes, I'm gonna I say agree. that out loud. That movie will never make this our, our show. Well, except for I, just now, it just did. Right. And that being said, though, I've seen it so many times. When you have a daughter who dresses like Rapunzel for yeah. Halloween, you have to watch that movie all the time. She loves it. Wow, um, second, that's so, unreal. Okay, what was number two? So 2.6. Second is John Carter, which that's not was a surprise. 132 minutes, 2.2 2, uh, million per finished minute. All right. Third, Quantum of Solace. Now, remember way back when we were talking yeah. about um, you brought up Quantum of Solace and how the writer's strike really affected that film. Yeah, they... I have a feeling that that's why this one ended up on the list. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably sinking true. suspicion. Yeah. So then going down, X-Men, The Last Stand, Toy Story 3, Spider-Man 3, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Golden Compass, Big Flop, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Cars 2, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Chronicles of Narnia, Robin Hood, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Avatar, way down here. Now, Avatar is number, I don't know what it is, number 15 on the list because at $237 million it costs to make. Not as much as Tangled, I will reiterate. Wow. It was it was 160 minutes long, so it was 1.4 million per finished minute. And then Superman Returns, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, then Cat in the Hat, then King Kong, and then Titanic. So it's very interesting. Now, I did a little more digging um, with Avatar, and I found a number for the budget that includes the marketing costs. Now, when you add the marketing costs into into Avatar, the budget for that was $460 million. So oh per finished minute, it was actually $2.8 million per finished minute. So, yeah. Woo! That's insane. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, as long anyway, as we're talking about... Enough about that, but I do want to say, as long as we're talking about Titanic, if you want to do, do something fun... I want you to go to Twitter. You don't have to do this now. Go to Twitter and just do a search for Titanic was real and read <laughs> read some of the, the tweets. 
Wow. Uh, it's curiosity. It's funny. It's funny. Uh, like, for example, Meg says, WTF, I never knew the Titanic was real. <laughs> I, and I'm just going to stop there. I mean, she swears a lot after that. But, <laughs> well, really, uh, do you need to go any farther? I mean, uh, I think. Nai Nai much... says, guys, as if talking to, you know, <laughs> closest friends, guys, the Titanic was real. Hashtag mind blown. <laughs> I think it's the mind blown that is the nice. That's the the touch that really pulls the heartstrings. Oh, so mind. we have not only a budgeting problem in this industry, but an education problem as well. We <laughs> really need to work. Uh, I, I think we're going to have to start before every single movie that was based on anything factual. It's going yeah. to have to by mandatory per the MPAA will now have to say based on a true story. Yes, it should be on the uh, on the green band trailer splash. <laughs> it needs to be everywhere based on this movie was based on something real. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, oh my that's goodness. obscene. Yeah, that is obscene. Well, that's very interesting, Andy Nelson. I'm so glad you did that little bit of research and spreadsheeting for us. It was fun. <laughs> it was it was fun only because of how shocking it was. It, I mean, it just really blows one's mind. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, what else? Uh, anything else jump out at you this week that that has happened that is new? Have you seen it? We haven't talked in a while, and so you know something has to have happened, right? Nope. No, me neither. <laughs> me neither. Honestly, it's been a pretty quiet week. Although, you know, have you seen the uh, the? So, just I, I'm not sure if it was today or yesterday, but the. The new G.I. Joe Retaliation uh, character posters hit the web. Oh, I uh, And I'm going to tell you, they look really good, although the photography looks <laughs> looks like it was done in Instagram. <laughs> I wonder if Facebook's uh, in contributing I, to the... Seriously, the seriously. I, uh, you know, what is interesting about it, I did not know this, and I was... Uh, so I started uh, clicking around uh, impawards.com. And do you, do you ever click on the on the links where it, where they actually credit on IMP Awards uh, who did the poster design? Yeah, I love going to the poster designs. Like yeah. the, the aggregated poster design pages on IMP Awards and then going to the to the pages... BLT and Associates. Wow. Those guys do everything. Everything. Do they really? uh, so, okay. They just, all right. So let's look at the list. Oh, all the movies. That's what's the, what the list is. They do all the movies. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, they do. Actually, they, I'm looking right now. They do all the movies. So, uh, the, the, they got uh, just, you know, right now, this year, they've got Spider Man 3, Apart, The Avengers, Battleship. Um, uh, let's see, Brave, uh, Cold Light of Day, whatever that one is, uh, <laughs> Devil Inside, uh, The Dictator, uh, John Carter, John Madagascar Carter, three, they did, Black three, they did GI Joe, uh, Retaliation and the original GI Joe. And I really like the character, uh, uh, the character splash posters for the, uh, for the first GI Joe. And that movie actually I liked uh, better than I expected to. They do a ton of TV character art too. Uh, if you scroll down, you can see they've, they've done, um, you know, all the big name, um, TV characters, uh, from, uh, gosh, um, all the HBO shows, uh, Rome, uh, that, that, and so you go to their website. Their website mm -hmm. is BL Tomato, I think. Uh, BL Tomato. Oh, really? Tomato. BL huh? com. Have, uh... And their website is super cool. It's got a loop that you drag around to see the art of all the posters they do. That's all fanned out. So Ooh, it's they did it, Zodiac. They, they did, did Zodiac. Zodiac that we love exactly. 
God, yeah, you're right. What haven't they done? I know. It's crazy. In fact, I want here's what you need to add to your spreadsheet. How many of those top 20 movies with the biggest budgets were actually uh, had all their poster art done by BL Tomato? I'll bet all of them right now. I think all of them did. We can finish this conversation later. (laughs) All right. All right. I think they've done all Will Smith movies. So that's uh that's my only that I could, that is such such a rat hole for me. I could get lost in character artwork. I mean their their posters are terrific. Yeah. BL Tomato. Good luck trying to get on the docket of those guys though. They don't they seem to If you're an indie filmmaker, call me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cuz you'll never get in with these guys. <laughs> Although they seem to do it for everybody. Well, Man, it's all the studios. It's so. all the big studios. All right, enough about that. Well, yeah, what are we talking let's, about? let's talk about... Uh, baseball. Baseball. So oh, we're doing oh, our baseball series, which I is just very wanted exciting. to talk about one more thing. Um, uh, I just want one oh. more thing. Uh, Skyfall. <laughs> there also new Skyfall art came out, uh, and Javier Bardem is my hero. Javier? Is, Javier Bardem? Is he really? Yeah, that's all I wanted to say. So Skyfall is another one I'm really, really looking forward to. Now, now I can close that tab, and we can talk about baseball. Okay. All right. So, uh, the natural. Tell me what you want yes. to say about the natural. That natural, well, not a true story. <laughs> I feel like we need to get that a out of the way. Disclaimer at the start of each podcast: This one is not this based is not on a true, true story. Not based on a true or, story for Nai or Nini for Nai on Twitter. It, in case and you're it, listening in, it may be it, it. It is difficult. You have to actually put yourself in there because Roy Hobbs sounds like a baseball player, not a real guy. <laughs> and he's playing a real game. He's playing, and those balls are real. They're not CGI. That's real, but it's not true. It's a, it's a oh, lie. Boy, we are so going all over the place tonight. This is for your wife, because she said we were distracted, and then we've completely gone. The, the pendulum swings way too far the other way. All right, tell me what you want to talk about, the, the natural. So the, the first thing that I want to talk about for the natural because I have my little list here. What I, I want to know your first memory of watching The Natural. Oh, the well, the gunshot. No, no, no. Your your, your first memory, like what your your experience of it. Yeah, like the first when, time I when saw. When did you the first movie. watch it? Uh, I saw it in the theaters. Oh, you did. So you yeah. saw it in eighty four. In eighty four. Yeah, yeah. My parent, my dad, took me to uh, to see it because you know baseball. And right. I think at that point he thought I was going. He was raising an athlete. I don't think we had actually met. Me and my dad, and so no, no, it was a, it was, it looked like a baseball movie, and not like the, you know, it didn't, it, it looked like a different movie than what I think he intended to see. But uh, I, I, I remember very clearly seeing the movie, and I remember uh, being absolutely stunned by the gunshot. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Right, right. What's yours? Do you, you don't remember my first experience? <laughs> oh, was it? Did you just tell you me were you were there? Tra- was it in in my dorm room? No, it wasn't in your dorm room. It was it was in uh, Mountain View. <gasps> oh, okay. I we we were living there, and you were so shocked that I had never seen this movie that we watched it right there, right then and there. Yeah, because I had it on uh, VHS. Uh, no, you had it on DVD. You had I did. DVD. Well, I had it on VHS too. Okay, I care, I've, oh. I've kept this movie with me. The funny thing about this movie. And I don't know if you recall this, but I had a really hard time with it because I was and I don't know what threw me when I when I watched it, but I was convinced 
that he was killed when she shot him and that the rest of the movie it was a ghost <laughs> do you remember that at all <laughs> i totally don't oh my gosh i was that's like and, and i was just trying to figure out like okay so those people can see him and all the people in the in the crowds can you see him. you thought was, it was an icy dead people movie i know i was so confused and i was trying to find the 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 clue that was like the twist that was going to happen like why he came back from as a ghost to like reinvigorate pops and this whole team and and I was so confused. Wow. And then it finally clicked. Like, I don't know when it finally clicked, but I, it, and I was just, and I was let down. But at the same time, I was just like, I felt so stupid. Because I'm like, wow, I really took this in a direction that I don't think anybody has probably taken it before. Man, and it ends so fast. I imagine if you, if you had, if you were carrying that around, watching the end of this movie would be an enormous disappointment. Because <laughs> you're like, well, what? Because it just ends. It's just over. It's just the end. Yeah, yeah. So oh. that was a very funny experience for me, and uh, and so it was weird rewatching it again. And I've seen it a couple times since, but um, it it took me a while to get past that memory and just be able to watch it again because as I would rewatch it, all I could do was laugh at how silly I was thinking that, just <laughs> like. All right. Well, uh, how's it? How has it aged for you? You know, the thing that really made it work for me now is um, I was listening to. Um, I think there was a, a documentary on the on the disc that was talking about like the making of and all that stuff, and it was talking about the the mythos that they that um, Malamud Bernard Malamud, who wrote the novel, that he instilled throughout the novel, and then that permeated through the film as well. And I started thinking about it and it's, it really, I mean, the film just uh, was just magnified in my mind. It just like the, the, the brilliance of how the story was told as a, as like this mythic tale of a hero's journey. I mean, it really is. And, um, it, I just, uh, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, and mm -hmm. so I really, now I think that, that I see it that way and I'm done with the icy dead people story that I, yeah, that's, that changes things. <laughs> I'm now at a place where I'm like, wow, I can really appreciate what they're doing with this film and, and creating this, this mythic tale about this, this sport that really has this, um, kind of a, I don't, I don't know if it has a mythic quality, but it's just got this, this different quality to it than some of the other sports do. Yeah. I, I, you know, I agree with that. I think that the, I think it's hard to, to, uh, have a, well, okay. Yeah. I agree with Smith. And when you, and when you look at it, when you take a step back and you look at all of the parallels between, um, the, the mythic characters, uh, you know, really almost feels mapped character for character, uh, to, to, you know, the Odyssey. Uh, mm. I, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, we're not talking about like, you know, the classics we're talking about <laughs> the, the Greeks and the Romans, you, you know, right. uh, and, and, and it, it is that it operates at that level of depth. What I think is so interesting about this movie is just how well it performs as a screenplay. Right. And, and that's one of the things I'm interested in you talking about. Is this one of the ones that you teach in your class? Is this in the great book? It's not. <laughs> it should be. It totally, it don't you think it should be? This one is stunningly good. And I'm going to tell you why I think so. 
Tell me. Because this one, and, and we should say, the, the film was written by uh, um, the, the uh, almost as uh, well-known town brother, Ro- Roger Town, um, <laughs> a brother of Robert Town, who is, uh, you know, known for, for China. Chinatown, <laughs> uh, but but you know Roger Town is known for some other some other films that were not bad, just not as many uh, movies. Uh, you know he did The Recruit, uh, in the Company of Spies was a TV movie I haven't seen, but you know Tom Berenger, how can you go wrong with Tom Berenger? Um, uh, but but this was the one that uh, that I think was was of greatest note, um, and it it operates structurally as I think um, a, a real standalone piece of art. And I, I really like it because it's architected in such a way to let the each like part of the filmmaking team do the job that they need to do at their very best, right? Truly. It is a script that is, I mean, you, you watch this thing and there's hardly any dialogue in it. I mean, there really is. This is a very sparse dialogue film. Yeah, it's it's it's. It, but, but what's there is just sharp. It is absolutely perfect. It's like it has been whittled down to its absolute base components, right? And so, when as an you know, this this is the goal. I I would say of the screenwriting process is to pre- is to prepare this blueprint that allows the actors to put their best work into. Uh, into this piece, and then it, it is handed off to the director and to the and to the cinematographer, and allows them to to you know to get from the film the very best visuals and the very best structure that they can, and and allows each member of this team to build their very best work on it. And this script is like a case study for uh, you know a perfect structure of what a screenplay should be. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think he just it nails it. Now, I, you know, I, uh, so I, I guess you know we can we can talk about each of the, um, you know, about about the characters. We should we should talk a, a little bit about Robert Redford. I'm interested in in your perception of his performance in this. Uh, this this movie got the fairly middling reviews. It, you know, the the. Int- thing about the reviews and i i read this from both critics and then also the filmmakers themselves they felt that uh, because the novel i think was a downer uh, it was well it was a serious downer but it was also uh, more well received i think than the film was uh initially at least for the film and i think what happened at least what the what people said is if if people were real fans of the novel if the critics were who were reviewing it, they really were unhappy with the changes made in the in the film. That was that was actually one of the things I noted that Gene Siskel said quite specifically. He said the 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 people who really didn't like this movie likely just read the book. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and yeah. I think there's a that important sense of recency, right? I mean that that they just if you walk into the film having you know just read the book, you're probably not going to like it. Yeah, which I think is often true with with any adaptation. Yeah. If it's really fresh in your mind, they're never going to compare. It's, right. it's rare that they do. But um, yeah, it's um, I I think it just it struggled. Well, and the other interesting thing about it was, I mean, it truly is kind of a, a fable. It's this fairy tale, um, mythic story um, about baseball coming out at a time when baseball films were not that popular or, or 
that frequent at the at the movie houses, right? Mm-hmm. They were just uh, for whatever reason, baseballs uh, or baseball films hadn't taken off. This film actually really is kind of the the film that helped baseball movies get uh, really start getting out there. I mean, there had been some, but mostly they were like. Um, bio films like the Babe Ruth story or the Stratton story or the Jackie Robinson story, uh, you know, those sorts of films. And, you know, then there's Damn Yankees, not a whole lot, Bang the Drum Slowly, which was also a, a biopic in the 70s, and then Bad News Bears. And then, um, you know, there was a few others in the 70s, uh, not a whole lot. And then The Natural came out in 84. And that was the one that really, even though it didn't get critical acclaim um for whatever reason i think it it just tapped into people's desire to see inspiring baseball films and that really kind of birthed the modern baseball film that took off after that well and i you know i wonder how much the uh, i i guess we should talk about the nature of sort of baseball films versus versus uh, inspiring films because or you I, mean inspiring sports films or just well inspiring okay inspiring sports sports films you know i i wouldn't I wouldn't compare this to Prefontaine. Uh, you know, there, there's a. There, I'd I, like to see you try. There is. <laughs> there is certainly a um, uh, a sort of athletic film gestalt, right? That that is um, that has kind of its own language, but uh, and and I wonder how baseball films. Um, you know that the. I don't, I don't know. I I. I I have a hard time characterizing uh, what is different about baseball, that, well, because baseball is not a great sport. I mean, okay, I'm uh, wait a minute. Well, I'm going to take that back. I was in, I so I was in Boston last week, and right. you know it was opening day. I was in Boston, standing at the Fens uh, by Fenway Park on opening day, uh, Red Sox baseball, and there is a, a degree of hooliganry mm. that that is beyond compare. Uh, and so I, I certainly, I, I understand that there is, I understand fandom, but I find baseball itself to be a, a rather tedious sport. Well, here's the thing about baseball. How did baseball films become so great? That's my question. Ba- well, baseball is a, it's a sport about statistics and, uh, not to, not to make it sound like you have to take the magic out of the game or anything, but really it's a game that you have to kind of understand the the statistics of the player as they're going up and and it really kind of that ends up infusing your appreciation for the game and is that, that how you do it do you watch it with the spreadsheets and such i don't watch baseball <laughs> but i could <laughs> but i could <laughs> i could watch baseball <laughs> no if there if there were a sport that i would enjoy watching more it would be baseball, but I've never, I, I just never had it in my life. And for whatever reason, I just never, well, uh, and never that's got the thing. into it. I mean, you bring up a great point. Like the, the movie that actually got me into thinking about baseball and I, you know, I haven't really jumped into it yet. I thought I would, but I, I haven't really was, was Moneyball. And it was because of the statistics angle like mm-hmm. that, that actually started to make sense to me. Sure. But, but this movie, I, I don't think baseball is necessarily the, the sort of, uh, the the operant condition of this film to make it Im- important. Well, but see, here's the thing, and that, this is where I was going with my rambly uh, uh, diatribe that I just had about baseball. Um, although I, you know, let me put an asterisk on here. I do have a tie to baseball, which is I actually have uh, my great great uncle played for the Cubs. 
or sorry, the Indians. I can't. You don't even know. You don't. I know. He played. He played for the Indians um, and uh, second baseman, and he's the only baseball player in in baseball history still to this day to make an unassisted triple play in a World Series. Unassisted triple play in mm -hmm. a World Series. I I'm gonna have to write that down. (laughs) <laughs> and figure out what it means. That's fantastic. Congratulations yep. to you for being for essentially a non-contributing zero. <laughs> in that statistic. Oh, thank no, you. No, but uh, what was his name? What was his name? Do you uh, remember? His, his name? name is yes. It's Bill Wamsconce. Bill Wamsconce. Yes. W a m b s g a n s s. That's uh. That's very cool. Yeah. I, so that's my. I, I don't actually have a baseball. I sang. I have sung the national anthem. Uh, I opening day of the Orioles stadium in 1992, <laughs> and uh, that was big. And uh, George Bush, the first, uh, was through through the first ball. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get hit by it. Well, so anyway, good. okay. So why is so? I my question was, it, you so were right. saying something, and I yeah. Got... So baseball. Why is baseball different than other sports movies? Yes, baseball is a different sport, and I think this is why it works better than most sports movies in my mind other sports movies you've got this whole team and they're all focusing on the ball and they've got this it's a team truly team sport as people are interacting and doing things in baseball it's it's a sport where you have all these people out on the field right um you've got the pitcher who's pitching the ball to the the hitter and you've got the uh, and he's trying to hit the ball. And what happens is, it, in a sense, it eliminates all the other players. And it becomes a one-on-one sport, right? There's this moment in baseball uh, where you've got one-on-one things happening. It's not all just about where the ball is. There's, there's so many more things happening in baseball. You've got the people on the bases. You've got where the ball is. Uh, but then you've got people running, people hitting. It's just there's so much more excitement in baseball because... All of these different elements are coming together, and that's what creates something that's more unique than other sports. And because of the fact that you're able to create moments that are about one person facing a moment by themselves, which is essentially you know, the guy at the plate getting ready to hit that ball that the pitcher's going to throw their way, that's what turns it into a sport about a person facing an obstacle. And that's why baseball movies end up creating something different and I think a little more unique and magical than other sports. Hmm. All right. So uh, if we were to create sort of an emotional perception map of where uh, sports movies fall, uh, I I gather you would say that boxing movies achieve this to some greater degree even than baseball movies and football movies to a lesser degree. That's right, I guess. Although I don't know. I think by the, the nature of boxing movies, the fact that it's such a pugilistic thing, I, I think it's taking some of that out of it. Not to say Raging Bull isn't one of the greats. but One of the greats. It's, now uh, we're going to have to do a boxing series. Probably I know. Raging Bull. And I don't want to sound no. like, you know, I don't like the other sports movies. You know, I think Hoosiers is an amazing yeah. film. Basketball you know, I movies, think, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there's great football movies. There's great golf movies. There's all these great there movies. Are no there are no great golf sports. movies. Oh, right. come there's on. There's one great golf movie. Uh, let's see. 
<laughs> I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> it's uh, Caddyshack. That's right. It's Caddyshack. Okay. Well, yeah, uh, okay. Now I feel like I, we've we've rattled a little bit on sports movies, and that was my fault. But but one of the things that I think is so powerful in this movie is uh, is um, it, it goes back to the way um, the experience of of Roy Hobbs being shot that experience becomes a character in this film, mm-hmm. right? It is the black hole around which all of the emotional energy is sort of constantly swirling. And I think the real art in, in how this was architected is, is uh, all in Robert Redford's ability to say so much without saying a damned thing. Did you yeah. notice that? The guy... This character, and and really, he is expert at delivering nothing verbally. Right. He is expert at it, and I I mean that with a with great respect because I watch this guy, and and what what he is able to to bring across as you're watching him is just about the most um, adult human male sort of realistic performance as I have seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one that in uh, just so few words can encapsulate all of the shame that he carries really unnaturally or, uh, you know, un- unfairly about this event from his past as he is trying to rebuild. And I think that was that makes this um, where, where I think so many other movies and we'll talk about, you know, this in contrast with baseball movies yet to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, about how the traumatic event ends up being worn on the sleeves of the players, right. and this movie, every effort is taken to to make it a uh, to make it something that is uh, that is not spoken of until it absolutely must be spoken of, and it hits at just just the right point yeah. in the film when he comes out and and actually. Um, uh, actually talks to Glenn Close, um, you know, Iris, Iris, yeah, on, on and their re- kind of return when he finally comes to terms with the fact that he he can he can come out with this and talk to her again, and that ends up being a very a very powerful kind of a montage almost uh, of conversation. Well, and she says something there that I feel is just I don't it's the line that stuck with me more than any other line in this film, and it's I think that we each have two lives it's the life that we live and the life no it's the life yeah it's the life that we live and the life we learn from after that that's so good so and good i was just like man if that is not a defining description of what life is like i it just it really really just it, i it is and and as much up. as as much as she her character probably didn't need to say that because the movie is a, a brilliant um, sort of pay in to that effect mm-hmm. uh, that she said it and that the line was written so perfectly, uh, yeah. I think is, it, it is, it's punctuation to what is, uh, you know, really uh, a, a wonderful discussion of, of rationalizing shame from uh, yeah. Barry Levinson. Yeah. 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 Barry Levinson, this, you know, being his second film. Yeah. You know, the only one he had done before this was Diner, and uh, it's it's pretty amazing that that he came out of the gate with this as as number two. It was um, 
TriStar's first film. And that so blew I, me away. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. Blew me away. Tri- yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty you, interesting. You that, go, TriStar. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, other folks to talk about. Robert uh, Robert Redford, obviously, we've sort of talked about. Do you talked about Redford? Do you have any uh, impressions to add on Redford's well, performance? Well, I Redford. I, he's just he. You're, everything that you said is is spot on. He's he's amazing in this film. He's perfect. My only um, note that I would have is that I've always struggled to buy him and Glenn Close as teenagers in the opening uh, scene. <laughs> uh, it's just, I have I have too, but I can't figure I mean, out do, if it's do you know because... How, do you know how old he was when he made this film? Uh, well, I was wondering actually the same about her. How old was he? He was 48. <laughs> oh my gosh. 48 years old playing an 18 year old and then uh then uh uh how old was he He he's like 16 years later right so yeah uh yeah so 34 uh 48 years old man he had some (laughs) he had some city miles on him i know well it's just like playing a teenager i'm just like uh okay i it's it's a struggle. I you know it that because that's the one moment that for me I've always had a hard time believing. And what it makes me feel like I'm watching is a play because in a play you often have like the same actor playing people like through their whole age, and they feel like older people pretending that they're like high school kids again. Mm-hmm. That's the only my only complaint with their performances. Other than that, I think Robert Redford is just amazing. Glenn Close, I mean, she's you know a, an amazing actress, and she does a great job in this. I mean, it's not a big role. She got nominated for best supporting actress. Interestingly, she says she she contributes the entire reason that she got nominated for um, the the cinematography and specifically the one scene where she stands up and her hat is glowing like a halo around her head. Mm -hmm. She says that shot is the reason that she got nominated for best uh, supporting actress. uh, I can, I I guess I could buy that. It was a beautiful shot there. I mean, there are some, there are some visual components of this movie that, that are, are really fantastic. I think it, you know, I, I had always, had a problem with uh breaking the clock oh really when he shatters the clock i always had a problem with that and and i didn't when i when i watched it again uh kind of preparing for the show Mm -hmm. i I did i i i I feel like i sort of get it um the the way visually the way the clock was sort of constructed the clock scene you know it's it, it feels very much like sort of the like you're at the end of the movie, you know, it feels like it's just sort of built yeah. up, built up, built up. And then he knocks the thing. He's, he's already knocked the, uh, knocked the case off the ball, the cover off the ball, you know? And so it's right. built up to this sort of crescendo and it comes up in that great, uh, Randy Newman score, um, mm-hmm. you know, builds to this great crescendo and the clock shatters, but you notice the sky is blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a beautiful blue sunny sky and it looks like a Saturday at the park and, and no great movies can end with a blue sky. And so <laughs> that's, but you know, the, the, the point is he needed to, it, like, it was something just to show that he could do something like this. And then you get a little dip, uh, you, you know, it's, it's almost like a, uh, a beat in his 
his sort of journey of power. It's like a, sort of defeating, um, you know, the first boss villain. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and it all builds to the, to the end where there are some of the uh, most beautiful uses of slow motion when he breaks the, 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 um, when he finally the, shatters the light. yeah, yeah. the lights at the end and the sparks are raining down on the field and you get these, these, uh, these shots where the focus is pulled just a little bit too late as he's running past. It's at a very low angle, you know, and the yeah. camera's like low to the ground and he's running past and you get this half frame and I just want to freeze it oh, and just watch him run by because the, the exposure is off, the focus is off. And yet it is, I mean, how many times have I seen this movie and I still choke up at that scene? I yeah. still choke up. It's stunning. And the shot of pops when, yeah. uh, when just looking at him as he's running and it, and all you see is kind of the reflection in his uh, glasses of the sparks, of the sparks. as everything else gets dark. It's just oh, it's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. gorgeous. Yeah. It is really, painterly. really gorgeous. It's painterly. It is painterly. That's what we would, we would call that. Uh, so um, let's see. What do we, what do we know about this movie? Who edited, uh, edited was Stu Linder. Um, Stu Linder has done, uh, he uh, did the uh, diner for, for uh, Barry Levinson. And then he got in with uh, uh, Steven Spielberg. And mm-hmm. um, well, he, he worked with Barry Levinson a lot. Yeah, um, he did. You know, Good Morning Vietnam. I think Barry Levinson did Good Morning Vietnam, but um, look at those uh, yeah, Tin Man, Rain Man, uh, Avalon, Tin Man, Bugsy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he he worked with him for quite part a part of while. the team. Yeah, uh, and what else do we what do we know about the cinematography of this movie? Well, Who Caleb did? Deschanel, um, I think, had just come off of um, the right stuff, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, he's a, a great cinematographer. Although I think he was relatively um, this was relatively relatively early in his career. Um, no, I guess he had done um, the Black Stallion as well, being there. Uh, but the right stuff was the big one that he had done right before the Natural, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then he's just gone on to just do lots of great things: Fly Away Home, um, Message in a Bottle, and in the King, The Patriot, The Passion of the Christ, National Treasure, Spiderwick Chronicles. You know, just uh, and he's. He just shot Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. So, you know, he's which which uh, is looks actually quite good. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the trailers of this one? Oh, yeah, man. I'm excited. It'll be interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it'll be interesting. Although, of course, we're going to need to preface this by saying this was not true as far as we know. As far as we know. Can I just (laughs) can I just say I I worked on a film um, a few years ago called Nether Beast Incorporated back in in 2006 that was uh about um a modern day office filled full of nether beasts which were essentially vampire type characters and it's kind of an office comedy with vampires but the story takes a step back in time to close to the origins of nether beasts which happened to be with president james garfield so so ever since the this Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter stuff started coming out, I was like, they totally just ripped off. They totally know, ripped off your nether beast, man. Dude. All right. We're going to have to add that one to the story list. Story. Yeah, so. They're on the list. Uh, yeah, there you go. Okay. But, uh, um, yeah, so, so, yes, go on. 
No, no, no. That was I was gonna. I wanted to talk about Randy Newman because he's another one who, um, you know, by then, by by the time this movie came out in 1984, Randy Newman obviously had already been, um, you know, he was a a um, uh, a musician of some renown. Uh, but this was only his second full uh, full uh, score. He had done some work for um, uh, he did Ragtime before mm-hmm. then, right? Uh, but uh, in terms of full scores, that was uh, this was this was his second, and I think I think uh, well, I would say that this is the one that that uh, made composition. A major part of this guy's business oh yeah i would agree I, this the the theme is possibly one of the great themes it know? is it is it's, absolutely with the just, you know i mean it's it, his and and his themes are you know i mean he's been doing this now for for long enough that you you really can say i mean he's been an active musician since 1961 yeah uh and didn't start doing film until 82 it looks like 82 81 anyhow so yeah. this is this is a guy who's been doing this for a long long time but uh, uh but his films or his themes are really <laughs> you know they they really stick with you i mean uh, maverick uh, Toy Story. Toy Story in particular, I think, is one that that is um, that that's big. Yeah, the whole trilogy. Uh, the I whole trilogy just, really yeah. is. It has his stamp all over it, and and his mm-hmm. work with Pixar in general, I think, really has mm-hmm. has his stamp all over it. But his his themes uh, stick with you, and I think he's his. Uh, this was the film that started it all, and it's 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 the well, um, it's the one that gave him some incredible momentum. Yeah, and I just, it's one of those themes that then when you hear it a few times, I mean, I still have not been able to get it out of my head, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, it's a great, great theme to be humming. It's just such a wonderful tune. Well, and it's a funny thing because he's, you know, he's done a lot of movies, more Mm -hmm. movies than I had, I had thought when I first started looking up his work and, uh, and he has won a lot of awards, uh, and certainly been nominated a ton. Yeah. Well, actually he hasn't won that many, but he's, he's nominated only won a twice, ton. He's yeah. won twice. But, uh, what is so interesting about, I think, Randy Newman is that I don't, I don't get the feeling that he is, um, you know, sort of the inside track kind of filmmaker, not like, um, you know, Howard Shore and, and, um, you know what's the Star Wars guy? John Williams. <laughs> you know that, that you know the John Star Wars guy who guy. you know who has a, an order of magnitude more scores under his belt than. But Randy Newman know. is from a very musical family, right? I mean, his brother Thomas Newman composes uh, for uh, tons of films, gets nominated all the time for in for his own music. Does does a lot of work with Pixar as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention his uh, their father. You know, Alfred Newman, one of the all-time uh, great composers. Exactly, and the one who composed the the Twentieth Century Fox, the original, the original short version Fox. of the Twentieth Century Fox theme. Hmm. And I take it back; he's cousin cousins with Thomas Newman and David Newman, another composer. Well, but uh, and and I was all wrong. Alfred Newman is their father. His father is Irving Newman. So there you go, man. He's but, da- this Thomas Newman. He's been around. 
I hadn't oh, yeah. seen his. Thing. He's been doing things. He did Skyfall. What? Yeah. Oh, and he Thomas did your Newman favorite is... movie, The Iron Lady. Tom... <laughs> Get a load of this. Thomas Newman is great. David Newman is great. They're all fantastic. The Help, The Iron Lady, The Adjustment Bureau, and The Debt. In 2011, yeah. that guy did everything. He's a busy man. Interesting. He did Wall-E. He's, he's, I think, Thomas Newman, and we're totally going off on a yeah, tangent yeah, here, yeah. but I think Thomas Newman holds the record for most nominations for an Oscar without winning one because he's been nominated for 10 Oscars. Wow. And has yet to win. He did Shawshank Redemption. Hey, yeah. Jumpin' Jack Flash and Gung Ho. He did Gung Ho. <laughs> he did Real Genius and The Man with One Red Shoe. Yeah. Okay. I, I love The Man with oh, One Red Shoe please. music. We're so going on crazy yeah. tangents. Let's get back to the natural. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know, I think maybe that's a sign that I think I have actually run out of things to say on the natural. Uh, well, tell me what I, you want to talk I, about. We're going to still talk because we're not done yet. Yeah. Um, going back to the mythology i just want to bring up a couple other things right. that i think are great um some of the characters that we have in this film other than roy hobbs our hero we've got the judge which um yeah. robert prosky fantastic i'll always remember him as as grandpa from um um you know that show i can't remember <laughs> well, that was that was great. That was Robert good, Prosky, yeah. he was he was the judge uh, in this, and he was Gramps in uh, the Munsters. There, there we go. Yes, um, fantastic, fantastic bit in here. He's essentially, um, you know, Hades. He's ruling hell, right? He sits in darkness, and that is, I think, my favorite conversation in this bit. You know, when he's talking about the darkness and all that, and you know, it's a pure canard. A what? A prevarication, a lie. You know, I, I love that bit. Mm -hmm. That's just fantastic. There, there is a sense that he delivers the um, uh, the reality of the business, right? He is the um, you know he's the the um, uh, network speech. What's uh, that I love so much? You know, mm -hmm. yeah. This is the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, right. and he's we Ned will Beatty, not have it. Yeah. Right? He's Ned Beatty. Right? And this he's is the, the corporate control. It, right. it is the sense that that this is you. You may think you understand everything because you are a player, but let me assure you, you are a pawn, uh, and I will I will guide you as such. That's the yeah. that's the role. And if you don't let me guide you, I will crush you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so he's fantastic. And then in an uncredited role, we have the wonderful Darren McGavin, who yes. is really interesting character. He's like the mystic, you know, he's the one eyed man who can, you know, he's like the seer. Right. And that in this, he's kind of the. Uh, um, Why was that an uncredited role? It's interesting. He was cast too late um, for him to. Um, and I don't really understand like how it really affected things, but they cast that role um, later than all the other roles. Like literally, I think it was like almost right before they were shooting. And um, he he opted instead of being because it, the cast was full of so many names and the way that the credit list was getting built, he would have been at the bottom. He's just, you know, what I, I think I'll go uncredited. And um, so he chose to take the uncredited role, and they said that he got more attention for his role than the other people did anyway. So I believe that. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, you know, he's that, like, mystic, one-eyed, 
creature in this. And it's it's really interesting. And I that, swear... That pissing match they have at the table when he says, I'll bet I can tell you to the dollar, mm-hmm. give or take a dollar, how much money you have in your pocket right now. Oh, it's great. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Um, and, and I swear that the contact that he wears to make his eye look like a glass eye, I swear it gets bigger as the film goes on. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but by the huh. end... His pupil looks so huge, and I I, I have no idea. But that's interesting. I'm gonna need to watch it again. I've never uh, I've never looked at it. Like by the end, he's totally bug eyed out. Yeah, and maybe it's just the way they light that yeah. eye or something. I don't know, but it just always struck me because I don't notice it so much at the beginning, but by the end, it's like, hello, mm-hmm. big glass eye here. Uh, are you gonna talk about Wilford Brimley and uh, and yeah. Richard Farnsworth? Yes, yes. All right. So. Um, well, okay. Go, you do your thing. I'm sorry. The, I'm interrupting your notes. No, no, no. Comparing to the mythology and stuff yeah. and everything, Glenn Close playing Iris, again, who is, uh, you know, Iris, rainbows, kind of, you know, the goddess of light and all that sort of thing. Um, Kim Basinger playing Memo, Paris. Uh, and that's just an interesting, I think it's just an interesting name because Memo is like a memory. And she's almost like a memory version of Harriet Barbara Hershey's character character Harriet yeah. Bird, right? The the dark lady who comes in and she's kind of like um a force of nature and interestingly she actually brings up to Roy Hobbs when they're on the train, have you ever read Homer? She's mm-hmm. kind of referring to these myths. I'm interested uh you know one of the one of the sort of critiques of the film is that um that there is not more time spent deciphering the incident right that the shooting and and her motivation and pulling down the veil and that barbara hershey had this role to come in uh we have you know one bit where joe don yeah. baker actually reads the newspaper and says or, or uh, it wasn't joe don baker it was actually um you know um um max saying you know reading the newspaper to the whammer saying uh, right. uh you know there's a shooting in the silver bullet then he gets rubber ever gets shot and that's it I mean, it, it that seems like a momentous kind of an occasion in the film, and it is essentially uh, swept away. And one of the critiques that that I yeah. have read pretty consistently is that mystery was unresolved, and that makes this less of a film as a result. I, you know, I I don't think so. It is a mystery. Um, famously, um, President Reagan actually when he was talking to one of the screenwriters, that was his question. He's like, why does she shoot him? I didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if this was before or after Reagan's uh, assassination attempt. (laughs) But uh, he had to explain, well, there's the scene on the train where they're talking about the two sports people who had been killed or who'd been killed by, you know, silver bullets. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you have to be really paying attention to catch that line where they're talking about it. Otherwise you miss it. And if you miss it, then it's like, what? What is going on with this woman killing him? What's going on? And it, it's kind of strange. It's just an interesting character. And you're right. It's it's one of those things that you have to kind of buy into. Um, but if you look at it as a myth, this is really a kind of a dark figure who, if somebody is like too egotistical and is is, you know, I mean, this is a hero who, you know, pulled Excalibur out of the tree. You know, mm-hmm. he his he crafted Wonder Boy out of this 
you know, shard of a tree left by this bolt of lightning that, you know, for all intents and purposes, Zeus hurled down. Mm -hmm. And so he creates this sword and he goes out into the world to, to fight and to be, be a great hero, but he's got a big ego. What he wants is to be the best ever and to be somebody that everybody talks about. He's not doing it for the love of the game. He's not doing it for any other reason other than his own selfish ego. And she comes along as a... as the a First, the temptress. Yeah, the temptress. And, and, the, and then, you know, finding that he really is doing it for the wrong reasons really is like the... And I, I don't know the mythic character that that would be, but is essentially like the creature that comes along to destroy those who are too egotistical and, and pursuing things for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an interesting character. It's like this, uh, you know, I guess in more, um, you know, in the, it's a noirish femme fatale sort of character. Almost, right. You know? Right. So it's, it's very interesting. If you look at it from the mythical perspective, and I think that's what I had to do. I could buy into it a lot more because I had trouble with that, too. Yeah, I you know, it's one of those things you see the movie enough times you just sort of that that becomes uh, just a beat and it wash yeah. the rest of the movie. It, it It's the gate that allows the rest of the movie to wash over you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, OK, so so Wilford Brimley plays yeah. Pop Fisher. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this is an interesting one that I hadn't, you know, connected to the myths. But as I was looking, looking around online. His connection is the Fisher King. And in the Arthurian legends, um, Percival is out searching for the Holy Grail and it comes across this, this, this castle in this wasteland. And there's the Fisher King there who's, you know, who himself is, is wasting away. He's, he's withering and he needs somebody to rescue him and by in turn rescuing him will save his kingdom. And it will re restore it to life and everything. Mm -hmm. And Pop Fisher, literally, is kind of the Fisher King character in this. You know, he's arthritic. He can't, you know, he is unable to play anymore. And and he needs that character to come along and save him. And that's who Roy Hobbs is. And it, when the film starts, when Roy first arrives, the field is dead. It's kind of a, a brown, ugly field. Right. And when he first hits that ball, the lightning strikes and it starts raining. And the land is restored. That's it. So pretty That's interesting. It. Yeah. The famine, the famine is over. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, through Memo Paris, he starts building his ego again. But luckily, through Iris, he is able to, you know, find reason to do things for the right reasons again, I guess. Hmm. I love it. I love it. I love that. Uh, uh, I, I think we should somehow maybe document some of these. I mean, the that that the Fisher King and uh, the Wasteland, uh, and some of the Arthurian, especially that the that the you know the more obvious uh, play that the team is actually the New York Knights. <laughs> yeah, uh, very big point there. The, yeah. the Knights and the Pirates. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, it's. Uh, um, uh, it, it, it makes for a more, uh, for a richer read. Yeah. Uh, and this was all in Malamud's book. You know, he really yeah. had all this in his book. He wrote it at a time right after the war. It came out in 52. And I think he felt 
you know, with all of these um, people coming back from the war, not getting work, you know, he just felt like he needed to tell a truer story to the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it had such a downer of an ending. Um, well, and we should say specifically why it was a downer of an ending at the end of the book. Uh, 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 Roy Hobbs' character uh, actually throws it. Uh, he throws the game. Uh, and they lose. Uh, mm -hmm. As opposed to the great um, win in the, does he the actually film. throw it or does he just miss? Well, it's it's unknown uh, because yeah. at the end the kid comes up and and says you know say it ain't so say it ain't so mm. you know and he he doesn't say anything but he puts his hands and his head in his hands and begins to cry yeah. and he cries and cries and cries and that's you know that's how the book ends so uh, you know there are. Um, you know, there are, are uh, folks who speculate, and I, I obviously don't know, um, you know, I don't know the extent to which this is true, but that this, that the book was actually um, uh, based on the shooting incident of uh, the real player, uh, the Philadelphia Phillies player, Eddie Waitkus. Eddie, Eddie Waitkus, yeah. Waitkus. And, um, uh, and then the... Um, Gosh, it was the it was when um, uh, who was it that threw the that the, threw the, the World Series? Yeah, it was the White Sox. It was the White Sox, right? Yeah, so Eight Men Out, another another baseball movie that one day we should talk about. We should definitely talk about that. But that that was what uh, you know that uh, inspired the natural of the book, and so it was really about the dark side. This was a book that really celebrated more the dark side of the game, and this character that was coming back and rebuilding, and it was the the heroic epic journey, uh, you know, the epic journey. And, uh, you know, almost, um, well, not, not even almost, uh, an epic journey that ends in failure. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I, it, you know, it was written in a, a darker time, you know. I mean, yeah. That's a, that'd yeah. be a different conversation, you know. No, it would. It, it definitely was. And it's, it's, it's interesting because Malamud, when he saw the movie you know he wrote this he was he grew up um in new york and he was i think he was russian if i recall and he grew up in new york and uh was fascinated by baseball and he decided to you know he wrote this book and um it wasn't until and because he really enjoyed the americanness of it and he always kind of wanted to feel like he fit in and everything mm -hmm. but it wasn't until the movie came out and he went and saw the movie and the ending with it all being different and everything he walked out and his i can't remember if it was a wife or his daughter but someone asked him he's like well what'd you think and he said now that i've seen this i am i'm finally an american i mean i'm finally an american writer mm. like he felt like the way that they translated the book and everything brought about the Americanness of the story that he was telling. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting. Um, you know, the rest of his, <laughs> the rest of his books are, um, you know, deal with, uh, equally heavy, uh, topics from anti-Semitism to, you know, religious persecution. And, and, you know, this movie, it, it's interesting that this movie sort of fits that, that mold and yet was so easy to turn into something that, that, you know, makes a grown man cry. Well, I think it was because he, you, not only did he take some stuff from real life that people could connect to, but I think it's because he pulled all these things from myth and, mm -hmm. and infused the novel with that. So it just made it so easy to create a story about a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. 
It was. So. It is beautiful. You know, and and so as much as we talk about Robert uh, or Roger Towns' contribution to the, you know, the beautifully architected screenplay, he really. I mean, the the, the bottom line is he had an incredible story to work from. Um, well, and and I, did you mention Phil Dusenberry because he co-wrote? He it co-wrote him. this uh, yeah. the script, right? I I I get really excited about town. <laughs> town people townies Those town guys um but but that's uh, that's a very good point is it's that um you know this the the source material was was you know incredibly rich and um uh, and well structured story it is well structured story yeah um, so beautiful yeah. what do you got it's good stuff man good stuff what are we going to do next week um, so we're going to continue our baseball series. We're going to somehow our baseball series ended up being structured to be '80s baseball movies, <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I no. think that's great. So, so uh, next week we're going to talk about Bull Durham, and then we'll follow that up with Major League and end with Field of Dreams. Man, so it'll be a fun series. '80s, <laughs> '80s baseball movies with a bent toward a certain actor <laughs> your favorite your favorite they're great movies they're, okay i'm gonna yeah i think you're right so next week is bull durham bull durham yep i can do that i'm excited about bull durham oh yeah that's great stuff okay that's all i got this was good talk yes yes indeed yes indeed we gotta um we gotta end with fireworks we need big exploding fireworks raining sparks down on the end of this podcast that's how we end a podcast for the natural. Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. I'm going to cut in right now. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>